Please turn within your Bible to 1 Samuel 19. And as you find your way to 1 Samuel 19, please stand with me and let's pray together and ask that God would bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you for who you are. You're our God. You're our Savior. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We love you. We trust your word. You tell us that you honor your word even more than your name. So we come humbly and hungry this morning that you would teach us, that you would instruct us. Would you please remove distractions, allow our hearts to be soft so that your word can be planted in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. The title of our message this morning is this, it is craziness and chaos. Can you relate? Do you ever feel like your life can be defined as craziness and chaos? Well, for King David, that's exactly the season that he is entering into. Saul is desiring to kill him. What has taken place so far in David's life? He's a shepherd. And as a shepherd, then he is anointed to be the king of Israel as the youngest of eight brothers. From there, he goes to be in Saul's presence to play the harp, then back to the sheep. All of a sudden, he finds himself before this giant Goliath. God wins a great, great victory. From that point on, Saul says, you're not going to leave my presence. David begins to go out and to fight battles. A new hit song comes onto the scene in Israel. Everybody's humming it and singing it. David has killed his tens of thousands and Saul his thousands. Hatred develops in the heart of Saul. Saul attempts to kill David on two occasions, and this is where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 19. It is going to introduce a time in David's life, an eight-year period, where David is on the run from King Saul. That's a long time. Bible teachers and commentaries estimate that he's between age 22 and age 30. Craziness and chaos is a mild way to describe this season of his life. My daughters, they're into this needlework where uh, they, I don't even know how to describe it. You ladies probably know. But on the back of the, the needlework, it is chaos. You're, you're looking at all this yarn and it's, it's knotted and all this. And then you look on the other side and it's beautiful. It's amazing. There's, there's a plan. There's a method to this needlework. And that's David's life. You look on the back side of it. And you go, this is crazy. But then you look on the front side and you go, God is doing a great work. And that's what I hope that we see in our lives this morning, that in the midst of the craziness and the chaos and the Saul-type experiences, that God has a plan. This is God's way of developing a great man. A man after his own heart is to put him through this difficult circumstance. And the same will be true in our lives. God still enrolls his people in the school of hard knocks, where patience has its perfect work, where the rough edges get knocked out of us. The great psalms that we love to read are birthed, are written out of this season of David's life where he is running from Saul. So let's see how God works in the craziness and the chaos. Verse one. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. If you're taking notes, we'll have three primary points this morning. The first is this, and it's God's advocate. It's God's advocate. Jonathan chooses to take on the role of being an advocate. Saul's anger is beginning to be multiplied. His bitterness is growing, which is always the case. First, he tried to kill David on his own. 
Then he goes and he tries to get David killed by sending him to attack the, the Philistines in order to marry his daughter. But now it becomes a full-blown campaign. As king, who's going to stop him? So he gets his servants involved. He gets his son involved. But Jonathan isn't going to get on board with this because he's friends with David. He's made a covenant with David. He delights in David. So verse 7, so Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. Jonathan risks his own life and his relationship with his father to go to David and say, real trouble is on the horizon. You need to be careful. You need to take hiding. You need to go into shelter because my dad is trying to kill you. This is an unjust thing that Saul is doing. And what we find Jonathan doing is he's standing up for what is right. He's doing justly. The scriptures teach us that we are to walk humbly with our God and to do justly. This is something that God calls us to in the Christian life. In our circles, the things that God has brought to us, we can't stand blindly and allow someone to die innocently. The scriptures tell us if we know to do good and we don't do it, it is sin. I think more and more in the culture that we live in, we're going to be faced with opportunities to decide, like Jonathan, will we be God's advocate? Will we do justly? Will we stand by or will we step up and say, I'm going to risk something here. I'm going to risk some personal safety. I'm going to risk a, a relationship. I think there's a stirring that's happening amongst the people of God. I, I have some of you coming and sharing with me how your heart is stirred to stand against human trafficking. It's one of those things that's not talked about a lot, but it's very prevalent in the state of Colorado. It's very prevalent in, in our community. And some of you've gotten involved right here in the Springs to see young teenage boys and girls get out of the sex trade. They've been kidnapped. A lot of times they're teenagers that come from broken homes. They go out onto the streets and then they get solicited. And before they know it, they're kidnapped and they're forced into this. And you've decided to do justly. You've decided to, to move into that. I hear more and more of you having a heart that's stirred for foster care and, and adoption. You look into the eyes of these young kids and you say, I want to do justly. I want to be their advocate. I want to step in on their behalf, just, just like Jonathan, to give them an opportunity to know Christ as their Savior. We all should have a heart uh, for the orphan and support the orphan in some way. James tells us that it's pure religion, undefiled, to care for the widow and the orphan, but that doesn't mean that God's calling everybody to do adoption and foster care. That's something that God specifically has to put on your heart, but that's been the case for some of you, and it's been a beautiful thing to see the Lord work in and through your life. I watched a, a video documentary this week called Dropbox. It's a powerful little film if you, if you find it on Netflix or can pick it up uh, somewhere. But it's about a pastor in Seoul, Korea, an older gentleman, him and his wife. They notice what's taking place in their community that young moms are abandoning their infant babies. We're talking these babies are just hours old and they're being left out into the cold. And many times they would die. And so he decided that he was going to build a drop box on his church. He also lives inside of, of his church. And, and the front of the drop box is this door that opens this way where the baby could be placed inside. When the door is opened, then there's a doorbell that rings. And they were able to come from the inside of their home and open the door and these brand new uh, little babies. He put the drop box in in 2013, not very long ago. How many babies do you think have come through this drop box? 
the time this video was filmed, 354 babies. 354 babies. He said he can't even remember how many umbilical cords that he had cut. A lot of the babies come without even the umbilical cord being cut properly. Then he would help these babies to find homes and to be able to be adopted. That's a heart that says, I'm going to do justly. That's a heart that says, I'm going to be an advocate for what's taking place in our community. Jonathan could have put his head in the sand. So this is too much for me to deal with. Dad's doing this. I'll just, I'll just never mind it. But instead, he decided to move into this place of being an advocate. We look at verse three, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. So he goes to his dad. He's going to bring up the subject of of David, and then this will give him an idea of the heart of his father. Who does this remind you of in some way? I think this points to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate advocate. Jesus goes to the Father on our behalf. He talks to the Father about the needs that are going on in our life. He is the high priest who has paid the price for us so that we could be presented faultless before the Father. There's some differences, though. Saul is not the perfect father. And our Heavenly Father, he is the perfect father. And in this case... David is upright. So we have Jonathan being an advocate for someone who is upright to an unjust father. It's completely switched for us. We're sinners. We're not upright. And Jesus is presenting us faultless before a perfect father, an upright father. Hebrews 9, or excuse me, Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, Therefore he also is able to save to the uttermost, to to those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So salvation is the beginning, where he saves us and presents us faultless, but then Jesus knows what's going on in our lives, and he continues to intercede on our behalf. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that comforting to know? You may feel like you don't have anybody in your corner. Like, this is great that David has an advocate. I don't have an advocate. Yes, you do. Jesus is your advocate. He knows what's going on in your life. Maybe your health, maybe your finances, maybe relationships, maybe depression. He knows. Addiction, God's there, and he's interceding on your your behalf. A powerful truth for us. Verse 4, thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the the king sinned against his servant, against David, because he's not sinned against you and because his works have been very good towards you. Jonathan's the voice of reality. Hey, don't do this. David's never wronged you. He's never sinned against you. How hard is it to confront anyone, especially your father, especially your mother, especially a parent? We've entitled this series of First and Second Samuel, Kings and Sons. And we see this playing out. We have a king, Saul. We have his son, Jonathan. And he has the courage to stand in truth to his father. And the world tells you, well, if this is the way your parents are, you're destined to be that same way. The apple doesn't fall from the tree. And though that's true, that we have a lot of traits of our parents, guess what? We're in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we're new creations. And Jonathan chooses a very different path than his father. And the scripture very systematically points that out to us to let us know if you come from that background, if you're saying, man, 
my parents seem a lot like Saul and you think there's no hope for you, look into the eyes of Jonathan. Jonathan says, no, I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to stand for what's right. And you can do that as well in your life. If you have godly parents, this is what I want you to do today if they're still living, is get them on the phone and say, hey, thank you so much for your godly example in my life because they've been a huge blessing to you. You've been able to stand on their shoulders. You don't have to confront them the way that Jonathan had to confront his own father. In verse five, he continues this conversation, this confrontation. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. David killed Goliath. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Saul is manic. He has these big swings back and forth. Here he's going to say, Okay, I'm giving up on this whole murder idea. Then we'll read in the next few verses that he tries to kill David again. So it's kind of like, I love you. I love you. And you're like, which one is it? You know, make make up your mind. And what we discover here in verse 6, as good as this sounds, as the Lord lives, I swear, I mean it this time. I'm making an oath. I'm not going to kill you. There isn't heart conviction. There isn't heart change. He's only saying words. Our hearts can get extremely hard. And when someone confronts us with the truth of our actions, sometimes it's easy to go, okay, I get it. You're the voice of reality. You're the voice of reason. I'm not going to go forward with this idea. You're right. Murder is a bad idea. You know, a lot of jail time comes, comes with murder. He, but he didn't allow his heart to be touched with this truth. We'll see that in the next few verses. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. Grace and tender hearts on David and Jonathan's side allow them to come back into Saul's presence. That they're willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and think, okay, Saul has really changed this time. But things can't be like in times past until there's genuine repentance. In order for there to be reconciliation in a relationship, there has to be repentance. And that hasn't taken place in Psalms part. So they're coming back in, and it's the good old days for a moment. And then verse 8, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow. And they fled from him. So now we get into the second section. First, we've seen God's advocate, Jonathan. Now we see God's plan. In the midst of this craziness, God has a distinct plan. Point, point number two. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. This distressing spirit was God's judgment upon Saul. Saul was in the habit of distressing people. He was a trouble to the land. So God, in his justice, says, I'm going to trouble Saul. I'm going to give him this distressing spirit. Several times in this narrative, we see this distressing spirit coming upon him. Then David would come in and play worship. David would come in and and play the harp unto the Lord. But here's Saul. He's just sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. Dude's got trouble, doesn't he? You know? He's just, he's just a recipe for disaster. 
In verse 10, then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. This is the third time, the third time that this has happened where Saul loses it in his rage and tries to kill David with, with the spear. Can you picture David playing the harp? Saul's got the spear. I bet he knew exactly where Saul was at at every moment. He didn't take his eyes off of Saul. Always keeping it out of the corner of his eye. Where, where's that spear? To throw a spear effectively, you've got to wind up, you know? And that little wind up gave David the opportunity to duck out, out of the way. A friend reminded me of this book, and it's a, it's a great book, A Tale of Three Kings. Write it down, A Tale of Three Kings. It's a short read, but it goes perfectly with this study of Saul and David, and it puts it into story form for us. And this is a quote from Gene Edwards, the, the author. It says, you can easily tell when someone has been hit by a spear. Isn't that true? He turns a deep shade of bitter. David never got hit. Gradually, he learned a very well-kept secret. One, never learn anything about the fashionable, easy, mastered art of spear throwing. Did you catch that? Never learn the art of spear throwing. Even though David was the victim of someone trying to throw spears at him, he never resorted to taking up that art of throwing spears. Very, very important. And then secondly, two, stay out of the company of all spear throwers. <laughs> I think David's learning that. I cannot be in the company of this guy. And three, keep your mouth tightly closed. In this way, spears will never touch you, even when they pierce your heart. Two arts, there's two arts that we see in this. There's the art of spear throwing. Don't be that person. And we talked about this last week. May God work that into our character. May we be quick to turn and repent when we get angry and we start to throw spears with our words. Don't be a person that tries to solve things with violence. God tells us in James chapter 1 to be quick to hear and slow to speak for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God can't do his work inside of our wrath. Don't pick up the spear and throw it back when someone has launched it at you. That's very difficult to do. Put yourself in David's sandals. The first time, okay, I won't return evil for evil. Give him the benefit of the doubt. He's having a bad day. This is a tough transition for him. Second time, third time, man, it's so tempting. This guy just doesn't get it. I'm throwing the spear right back at him, and I'm not going to miss. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to run this guy through. David would have missed God's blessing on his life. David makes the choice, I'm going to allow God to deal with Saul. Allow God to deal with the Saul in your life. Maybe you have a Saul at work. You've got Saul for a boss. Maybe somehow you've got Saul for a spouse. I'm sorry, but you chose it, you know? It's the reality that you live in, and your spouse is always throwing spears at you, and you're like, man, it's time for me to teach them a lesson. I'm throwing the spear back. No, let God deal with them. God's much better at it. You love them. Let God deal with them. That's what we find in David's character. But then also, he learned to duck. He learned to duck and get out of the way. And that's an art that we need to learn as well. So that boss comes at you verbally, you just duck and get out of the way. You know, that angry person on the road, you just duck and, and get out of the way. Someone in the family is in your face and going at you, just, just duck and, and get out of the way. It's difficult. We fail in those things, but may God teach us the art of ducking. 
in verse 11. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Michael was the daughter of Saul. And she says, Look, David, you need to get out of here tonight or you will be a dead man. In verse 12, So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. This is very literally a letdown for King David. He's the king's son-in-law. He's newly married. He's anointed as king. He's anticipating and looking forward to being king, thinking this is the natural way this is going to work out. Now I'm the king's son-in-law. Samuel's already anointed me. This is all playing out. All of a sudden now he's literally a moment from death. He's one step away from death, and he's let down out of the window of his new home. Not only is it a physical letdown, but it it is a letdown in every way. David writes a psalm about this experience. I want you to turn to Psalms uh, 59. To the right of your Bible, Psalms 59. Psalms right about in the middle of your Bible. And it gives us more insight on how David is feeling as he went through this experience. Maybe you're going through a letdown right now in your life. In some area of your life, you're just saying, I feel let down. Is Let's look at this psalm and apply it to our lives and see how that God's got a plan in the midst of the letdown. So Psalms 59, I'm going to quickly read through this. First, let's look at the title of this psalm. It says, To the chief musician set to do not destroy a victim of David when Saul sent him and they watched the house in order to kill him. So David's response to trying to be killed by Saul in the middle of the night here is to cry out to the Lord. And he writes this psalm, this song, based on this experience. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. This is the theme of David's response. God, deliver me. God, defend me. That should be our response when we're let down. God, deliver me. God, defend me. I'm looking to you. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. It's a great way to describe Saul. He's bloodthirsty for David. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me, and behold, you therefore, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all of the nations, Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressor. At evening they return, they growl like a dog, and go all around the city. Can you picture that? As they're waiting to to kill David, they're going around growling like dogs. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you his strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for the cursing and lying which they speak, consume me, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. And let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. At the evening they return, they growl like a dog, and go around all the city. 
They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. Now check this. this I love this. It's so powerful. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and my refuge in the day of trouble. To you, O oh my strength, I will sing. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. What do you do when you're let down? You sing to the Lord. You run to him to be the refuge. This concept of God being the defender, God being the strong tower, God being the refuge is developed because David had Saul in his life. Eight years, 22 to 30. God says, I'm going to allow Saul to try to kill you. You're going to wake up with this every day on your mind so that you can learn that I'm your refuge. And the same is true for us. Craziness, chaos, let down in our lives. I got to tell you, it's not chaos to God. It's ordained by God. It's his sovereign plan. It's the way he develops people. It's the way that you know in your heart of hearts, God is my refuge more than just a song we sing, more than just an intellectual property, but a reality. God, you're my refuge. You're my deliverer. I'm putting my trust in you. I'm not being overcome with evil, but I'm allowing you to, to take care of this. God, deliver me and be my defense. So let's see what happens in this story. Let's go back to chapter 19 of 1 Samuel. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed, but a, put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. Michael brings an image, an idol. So we do note that there was a household idol. Michael had an idol. David's escaped, but you've got to make sure that it looks like someone's in the bed. So put the idol in the bed and then get the goat's hair and you put it there. I wonder if there was some correlation between David's hair and the, and the goat's hair and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to David, she said, he's sick. Sorry, it's not a good day to kill David. He's not feeling well. <laughs> he's sick. Can you come back later? Then Saul sent the message back to back. To, then Saul sent the message back to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. It seems like the messengers really don't want to capture and kill David because they come back to Saul and they say, well, he's not feeling good, so we didn't arrest him. Saul's so like, well, you better go get him because I'm going to kill him today. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair from his head. Then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me this day? and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped. And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Do you get what Saul is doing? Saul is the perpetrator, but in his self-deception and the deception of sin, he thinks that he's the one that's being betrayed. He looks at his daughter. He's like, why have you helped David escape? And she should have looked at him and said, why are you trying to commit homicide? You know, why are you guilting me into feeling like I'm doing something wrong? And we need to be really, really careful at this because we could be doing a lot of damage in a lot of people's life, but our lens, what we view thing is, is everybody's betraying me. Everybody's out, out to get me, but the reality of it is I'm the bad guy and I don't even realize it. David's the bad guy here, but he thinks everybody around him is out to get him. He thinks his own daughter is betraying him. What do you think of Michael's answer? Is it truthful? It's not truthful. It's not an answer of faith. It's not an answer of courage. This isn't what took place, but she's basically saying, well, David made me do this, or he was going to kill me. In verse 18, so David fled and escaped 
and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Nahoth, a great example of what to do in distress, in distress. So what have we seen so far? We've seen God's advocate, Jonathan, pointing to Jesus Christ. We've seen God's plan. God is the one who is making David's life difficult to teach him great truths. But now we see God's protection in the life of David. When you go through distress, when you have letdowns, cry out to the Lord in worship, cry out to the Lord in prayer, and then get around God's people, solid followers of Jesus Christ, the Samuels in your life. David shows great wisdom to go to Samuel. Can you picture David? What do I do? Where do I go? Where's a safe place? Well, Samuel's a safe place. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is in Nahoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as a leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Powerful. They're going out to arrest David. They're called messengers. They're really soldiers. They get there where Samuel and David are hanging out with the prophets. The prophets are not known for being warriors, not a place that you would think would be a safe place for protection, but the Spirit of God is there. So here comes the soldiers to arrest David, and they get overcome by the Spirit of God, and they start prophesying. God's amazing hand of protection gets better in verse 21. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. So the text message goes back to Saul. Hey, we're here to arrest him, and we started prophesying. So he sends another group out, and the same thing happens. They get overcome by the Spirit of God. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also three times, three messengers. God shows his power. God shows his protection. God's got a means of protection here that no one would even imagine. Do you hear that? There's some Saul in your life that feels like they can wreck you. They can wreck your job, they can wreck your family, they can take your house, and you're wondering, how am I going to see through this? Am I going to make it? I'm just a step in front of death. And God's saying, no, you're not. I've got you protected. I really am your defender. An amazing, amazing display of God's protection. I'm reading a a book on missionaries. I picked it up uh, this week. I actually picked it up off of my kids' bookshelf. Yes, it is a kid's book, and it's right at my level. I'm really enjoying it. But it just has these short chapters about famous missionaries like Hudson Taylor and David Livingston and Gladys Allwood. And and one of the things I'm finding in each of these chapters in their lives is they have a testimony like this of God's protection that became a strong testimony to the community. Do you think that these men's lives that were the soldiers that were supposed to arrest David were impacted by this? Absolutely. Do you think that this story got known throughout all of Israel? Absolutely. And many times that's the case for these missionaries. They're put in this dangerous situation. God protects them and through that gets the attention of the community. Now that's not always the case. Sometimes God allows people to be martyred for Christ, but God shows his mighty hand and his glory in a powerful way. Gets even more colorful in these last few verses of the chapter. Then they also went to Ramah and came... Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. The he is Saul. Saul now says, I'm going to do this myself. 
I'm tired of these messengers going out to arrest and end up prophesying. So he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And, Sam, and someone said, indeed, they are at Naoth in Ramah. So he went there to Naoth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also. He went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. Did you catch that? Now Saul's prophesying. That's how powerful the Spirit of God is. God's not threatened. Not, God's not worried. Gets even better. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner. He gets naked. And he's prophesying. I think God just humiliates Saul here. God has to have a sense of humor. Here's this powerful guy that's trying to kill my guy, kill my man, David, and so I'm just going to humble him. The Spirit of God's going to come upon him. He's going to start prophesying, and he's going to be naked all day, just laying down prophesying. And so we see, laid naked all day and all night, therefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? And this is confusing as all get out, right? Because we get that God's protecting David through, through his spirit. But how could a man that's so far from God, he's in such a terrible place spiritually, such a place of rebellion, that the spirit of God could still come upon him and he could prophesy. We saw it also in the life of Samson. That God using our lives is not an indication necessarily that we're right with the Lord. How do we know if we're right with the Lord? By our faith in Jesus Christ. By being in fellowship with him. By keeping short accounts with the Lord. And how many times do we go, well, God's doing this in my life. He's providing for me. He's blessing me. I got to share Christ with, with this person. But if we know there's full-on rebellion in our lives, we still need to get right with the Lord. And we see that in Saul's life. Let's seek to make application uh, this morning. Maybe you're in a place where you're being attacked by an individual, by the enemy, Satan, by your own sin, your own failure this week, by a disease. There, there's something that is coming upon you that it, it's a real attack in one way or another is know this, Jesus is your advocate. The even greater than Jonathan is in your corner. And in your corner isn't even adequate way to describe it. He's your savior. He died for you. He rose again and he ever lives to make intercession for you. And from Christ's perspective, there's no question if we're gonna make it. You're gonna make it. It's already done. In fact, Jesus looks at you and says, you are glorified past tense. He is gonna finish that good work that he started in you. It's not gonna be the final chapter in your life. It may be the final thing in this life, but then we enter into eternal life. See that Jesus is our advocate when we're being attacked. Maybe you're being let down. You're going, man, the last eight years of my life, the last eight months, the last eight weeks, it's been described as craziness and chaos. These people that should love me are turning against me. It's, it's one letdown after another. I didn't even want to come this morning. I'm so discouraged. Just know this. God really does have a plan. And this is what I experience in my life is I can run from it or I can submit to it. I can surrender and say, I don't like having this in my life. I don't like Saul being in my life, the Saul situation. Instead of fighting it, I can say, okay, God, you're trying to get my attention. You're trying to teach me. You're teaching me in ways that I would have never learned otherwise. I submit to this process. I look to you. I sing to you. By singing to the Lord, our attention gets upon God. 
You're my defense. You're my deliverer. Easier than said than done. I pray that the Holy Spirit would meet you this morning if you're in a season of being let down. That he would assure you, I'm with you. I've ordained this. I've allowed this. I'm instructing you. And then finally, are you afraid? Are you in a place where you go, man, because of this Saul type of situation, I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent. I don't know how I'm going to pay my mortgage. I don't know how or if I'm going to get through this disease. This relational challenge is just suffocating me and fear has overcome you. Good news. God's your protector. And he has ways of protecting you that we would never imagine of. We wouldn't anticipate the soldiers to prophesy, Saul to prophesy, but God is a faithful protector. This is what we know, is we're going to enter into heaven right on time. God's numbered our days. So if he still has a plan for us here on this earth, we're going to be here. David's going to be here because God wants him to be king. And once God's plan's done, we can't prevent it. It's going to be time for us to go home to be with the Lord. This doesn't mean that we live recklessly doesn't mean you drive 120 on the freeway and go, well, my days are numbered, and if it's not my day, it's not my day. God might just allow you to die, and you enter into heaven, and he's like, that was stupid. You know, you shouldn't have been driving 120. You're really asking for it. So it's not this justification to live recklessly, but it is an assurance to live confidently in his arms. God, you got a plan for me. I don't need to be afraid. It looks like the end of me, but if you want me to be here, I will be here. So let's stand together. Let's close in prayer and close in worship. Father, as we come before you, we just ask that you would take these truths and you would minister to them to our hearts through the power of your spirit. Father, for those that are being attacked in some way, may they feel you standing with them and know that you, Jesus, are their advocate. If they're let down in some ways or great ways, God, that you would assure them that you have a plan, that you would meet them in worship right now, God, that you would encourage them. Lift up the weak, give power to those that are broken, God. And God, for those that are overcome by fear, may they look in your word and see how you protected David and know that you're our protector as well.